When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Seems like I haven't done this in a while. It's only been two weeks, but I'm so used to every week, and then we had the bonus episodes more than that, so yeah. uh, 10, 12 days off, it feels like we've been... <laughs> I don't know, a six-month cruise on the USS Eisenhower or something. So much happens in a two-week period right now, too, that it it does feel like a really long time. Glad you're back. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, I listened to you and Amanda. Thought it was really nice uh, and interesting and heartfelt and important episode last week. So I'm glad glad that uh, she was in my stead. I think she, she was... It's bright on so many things, and I had a lot to think about coming out of that episode, too, Mm -hmm. as we all, I think, are thinking about uh, a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. Before we get started, we want to ask you listeners if you would be willing to do us a little favor, take a little survey to tell us about yourself, helps us understand who the audience is, and also helps us understand what kinds of advertisers might be a good fit, what kind of sponsors on the show. Um, It'll only take a few minutes. You can check out the questions and enter to win an e-reader at bookriot.com slash 2020 survey. So if you would do that for us, we'd appreciate it. We sure would. Um, and before that, let's do a, a sponsor break and we'll get into to news and some other things. I lied, not news, follow-up. Um, you guys did a lot of the follow-up, but we had a, a few nice notes this week. People saying to the fact that their reading lives have been changed for the better by what they've heard us talk about, especially as it relates to matters of diversity, um, I just want to say thanks for that. I had I had a difficult week last week uh, myself, and it was a div- n- not related to, to to macro things, though it certainly didn't help. But um, I would really appreciated those notes. And I listen to podcasts too, and I know it's a weird thing to feel a real connection to people you listen to every week. Um, and it was reminding me to again, it's a special medium. Um, but I just want to say thanks for those yeah. of you who reached out and, and wrote us a, a note. It meant a lot to me personally. I yeah, I second that emotion. Those. Jeff forwarded them to me from our uh, podcast inbox, and they landed at really just the right moments. Um, Mm -hmm. We have done a lot of work. We have a lot of work ahead of us, and it is really helpful in the middle of it to know that it's reaching people. So thank you all. Yeah, thank you so much um, for that. Speaking of people who haven't been doing the work, um, boy, (laughs) the National Book Critic Circle Award... Just to do, just if you ever needed to be disabused of the notion that critics are grown-ups, um, or at least uh, that's not fair. That's not fair. Critics present themselves often as the grown-ups in the room. It, we're all people here, and people have a range of competencies and awarenesses. And the end, the National Book Critics Circle basically imploded last week. Um, and, and are we dealing with? W- one particular, what's your read of this? This person named Carlin Romano is, I, seemed to be the the the, the match. Yes. And there's some t- kindling. I think and we... it basically blew up. Yes, we are dealing with one person that sort of set things off inside the NBCC, but uh, that apparently these issues are, are not 
new. Um, and and it's revealed as we get into the details here, you can sort of see the lines of like other folks that have been supporting or enabling uh, what's been going on there, um, even if just by passively not doing anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks then responding, pushing for something else. The, I've read these pieces that we'll link to in the show notes about what happened twice, maybe three times each. And mm-hmm. every time I feel like I'm just that popping eyes emoji. Like it is one of the more uh, like nothing is outlandish or surprising, I guess. These are like very disappointing mm-hmm. behaviors, but they're not unique is what I'm that's where I'm trying to get. Like this is not the only time an organization has experienced these kinds of things. It's not the first kind of statement that a person has made about this stuff, but just the order of operations, like the way it went down uh, mm-hmm. is very just whew, so I guess the quick and dirty, if you can't even quick and dirty this, is um, that last week, the 24 members of the board of the National Book Critics Circle were attempting to draft a statement on behalf of the organization in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and in support of writers and critics of color. Um, Before the statement was approved by the whole board, um, a a Ugandan-American poet and essayist named Hope Wabuke, um, I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who led the effort to create the statement, resigned from the board. And she did this um, in a series of tweets where she explained her decision and revealed a series of internal emails about drafting the statement. Um, These focused on... um, the current vice president of grants, Carlin Romano, who is a former president of the NBCC, that the night before the statement was to be finalized, sent the working group a, a an email that questioned and in some cases outright rejected the presence of white supremacy, institutional racism, erasure of BIPOC authors, and white gatekeeping in the public or in the publishing community. And later emails, including one sent by um, the president at the time, Lori Herzl, thanked Romano for his comments and affirmed um, agreeing with him. Uh, Hope Wabuke saw this whole exchange and resigned from the board and made it public, saying it's not possible to change these organizations from within, and the backlash will be too dangerous for me to remain. So that's where it started. Yeah, I, just just to clarify, I don't, I guess, unless I saw something, I don't think Herzl agreed with Romano. I think thanked him for his comments, um, but I doesn't, I didn't see where he she affirmed that she agreed. Now maybe we're in a gray area that thinking could be construed. I'm not sure. I'm just looking at the PW piece, and that maybe is an important distinction. Or not Romano sounds like a real fun guy uh, to be around, and part of the problem that we see writ large, w- weirdly, not weirdly. Um, all uh, too no. commonly. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Herzl's reply says that she appreciates Romano's perspective. This is in the vulture piece. Oh, and, I'm looking at PW. Okay. Oh, yeah. So we have two pieces and, and that it, quote, shines unlike anyone else's, she wrote, adding, quote, your objections are all valid, of course. Oh, well, that's... I am wrong about <laughs> what, that characterization. Um, that's a terrible, terrible look. Uh, where was I going back to this? I don't remember... I mean, 
he he's demonstrating the very thing he seems to be wanting to uh to, to deny, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's so strange. It's like saying there aren't Holocaust deniers. Wait a minute. Right. Uh, also, <laughs> well, there's no Holocaust. Wait, yeah, wait, wait a minute. Like, I don't, I don't, it's like the old rule, there are probably multiple constructions of it, but I heard this rule as the first comment on a piece about feminism will always illustrate the need for feminism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. That, that's a, the really interesting piece. Basically, from there, not, not unlike the shape of the events that happened around the RWA, frankly, where there mm-hmm. was some internal, that some of that internal was made public. Um, and then the public making of those internal discussions caused a domino cascading series of reg- resignations, either in protest or and or in sort of frustration um, and as a mo- as a way of spotlighting too at yeah. the same time. Like, it, so I'm not sure we're gonna have a National Book Critics Association. Yeah, and it, it, both of those things happened in these waves. There's like a wave of folks who resigned from the board mm-hmm. in support of um, Hope Wabuke, and then there's a wave of folks who resigned from the board in protest of her having made internal documents public. And they basically, those, that like faction of people basically were like, well, by making these things public, she prevented us from being able to reach an mm-hmm. internal solution, which I got news for you <laughs> about the, the reasons that you could not reach an internal solution. And it has nothing to do with the fact that someone made your internal documents public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so again, th- there's some of this that's insider baseball and the NBCCs and bylaws. Like, like we saw with the Nobel, like with other s- situations, usually that's just a symptom, right? Like, oh, there's bylaws and there's this other problem. Well, there's the real, the real problem here is not the violation of a bylaws or the upholding of a bylaws, but an organization that, because of history, because of personnel, because of makeup, um, because of legacy, is unable to rise mm-hmm. to the moment we're in. Um, and the people within it who maybe are feel so handcuffed by the structures, by having to inhabit the same spaces of people who are actively rode, you know, throwing their bodies and reputations and lives and threatening to sue like an adult infant. The, and, you know, Carl, uh, Romano later says, I, you know, I'll sue if you vote me off the board and blah, blah, blah. Really doing the nastiest kind of stuff you can do within a professional context that's short of sort of outright illegal stuff, right? Like this is mm-hmm. all kind of using the, 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 the machinations and the structure and the bureaucracy, um, to still be, you know, a retrograde, you know, backwards dinosaur of a thinker um, and critic and so on and so forth. National Book Critics Circle, you know, this is one of those organizations that if, if, it, if it winked out of existence and no one wrote a press release about it, who exactly would notice? I think that's fair to say. I often like their selections for books of the year, though I couldn't tell you. I couldn't name one of the last 10, so there you go. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if this is, is. I'm not sure if this is an organization, even if it was constructed differently, is equipped to make a difference about anything. Frankly, I just don't know. I just don't know enough about how it works. I don't. What does this do besides this? Besides the NBCC awards, Rebecca? Do you know? I mean, I there's some no... grants and stuff apparently, but like, what is it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, when I was first blogging, like. But I, 
pre-Book Riot even. So like mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, um, and was beginning to network with people who had been more established in the industry. And there was still that like tension between critics right. and bloggers, which I guess maybe still exists, except the people on the internet don't care what the critics think about them anymore. Um, yeah, n- that's a fun game. Name a critic. Let's right. you, you buy three. Can you do three? Um, I was told, like, you should join the NBCC. It's an important organization and networking and blah, blah, blah. And I think I maybe paid dues to it for one year. But in the course of that year, like, I got some emails, perhaps. Yep. there. I didn't attend any meetings. I don't, I, I have no idea. Um, and I'm sure some of the work does um, impact writers directly. Maybe you're listening to this and the NBCC has been an important part of your work um, or your life in publishing. And we'd be interested in that. Yes, you can tell us about so. it mm-hmm. at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, my take as we were talking about it on the staff slack yesterday, it was like, th- this is probably so broken that for it to implode is the best possible solution. Yep. Yep. Um, I think that uh, Hope Wabuki is probably right that this is an organization that cannot be fixed from the inside. And part of it is in, or maybe even in large part due to having folks on the board who say things like assertions about white supremacy amount to calumnies on multiple generations of white publishers and editors. Uh, Burn it all down and start over with something better. There is a point in which the house is so dilapidated that you should just bulldoze it and start mm-hmm. start again. You know, there's a sunk cost in legacy and, you know, investment, personal, professional, and otherwise um, that, you know, that doesn't, it's, not, it's, it's, out, it's, it's, it's outlived its usefulness um, in the extreme. And now it's mm-hmm. just a millstone. It's no, it's yeah. no longer a tool. It's a millstone and ar- around your neck. I would guess that, all the industries in the country are seeing versions yep. of this happen yep. in companies and organizations. And we're seeing, you know, major like national headlines about some of them in in large companies. But there are groups in, you know, every corner of American culture that have been trying mm-hmm. to figure out what they're supposed to say about this, not to mention like what they actually believe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is a whole other question. Um, And in in the process of trying to figure out what they're supposed to say, they reveal what they actually believe. And um, a lot of light is being shined onto a lot of things that need light shined on them to kill them. And, you know, that's how you can start fresh is just shine the light on it. And I think that's happening here. Um, I hate to see the details of it and the personal harm that's caused here. it implies that there have been, you know, other harms that mm-hmm. have not been made public. It would be hard to fathom that it could be the case that these folks can make these kinds of statements and ha- not have caused other kinds of yeah. I've been totally related. chilled to this <laughs> right? point. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. This is just the first time they've done anything really painful to someone. Um, I think it's awful to see and good for uh, these kinds of transparency to be happening um but man and listening to you and amanda talk this week and then looking at the stories coming out this week knowing the kinds of things we would be talking about i had a couple of just sort of meta thoughts i'd be interested Mm. in you and the listeners reaction to or you know if if you're if you're feeling your fellow feeling you're you're seeing and feeling that kind of similarly is one you know i've seen a lot of think pieces of late in reading about um 
this 2020 version of Black Lives Matter, I guess is one way of, like, what do we call it? I'm thinking mm-hmm. I said before, the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, the civil rights movement, frankly, it's mm-hmm. a continuation of, of a longer movement. Um, so calling it the movement, I think, makes as much sense as anything. Why is it, is it, and why is it different than Ferguson, say, in 2016, right? You know, people said that happened. This is another instance that all these other people that have been killed, Trayvon Martin and others, had reactions that were vociferous and, and in the streets, but then nothing really came of it. How is it different than Parkland around gun control? And there's a big spike in public um, uh, support for increased um, rules around gun ownership and so on and so forth, and then it fades away. Why is this one different? Is it different? Does it feel different? And I think what we're seeing is in terms of, the, of course, the issues are the same, but the structural difference, the structural feeling, a feeling structure that's different, it feels more like what we saw with Me Too than it feels like Ferguson, right? It ha- the things that are mm-hmm. happening around race in publishing specifically, but all along the watchtower in businesses and government, feels more like what happened around Me Too three years ago, two or three years ago now, and that we're seeing this kind of stuff happen. Like, this is a reaction to George Floyd being murdered by police. This this discussion didn't come out of Trayvon Martin, right? It didn't come out of right. Mike Brown and Ferguson. Now, I don't know why exactly that is, but I don't kind of need to know why because we see the effects. And I think it is different because it is different. There's a tautology. It is different because what we're seeing right. happening from it is different. And maybe the proof is in the pudding there because it's me too for race is the way this is all falling out feels mm-hmm. exact. Exactly is not the right, but very structurally similar, similar yeah. to... You know, people feeling empowered or being newly receptive and maybe a combination of both and having an emergent property where the stories and the conditions and the realities are being paid attention to. And because they're being paid attention to, they're being voiced. And there's this virtuous circle that seems to be going on. It's like maybe people are going to listen now. So maybe I'll say something. And all these people that are saying something means maybe I should be listening now. And it has this effect of building on itself in a way I haven't seen before. The only structure similar is when we talk, you know, and Me Too is still going on publishing and it's bring up here in a bunch of different points. You know, we're talking about trans rights. You guys, you know, talking about rolling um, before. And we have another story to get here. But like that kind of feedback loop is new. And it started more with Me Too. And that has been a new factor in public discourse, especially on the left, around these huge social issues that has been introduced somehow into the DNA of the internet and America at large in a way that it wasn't, there was no purchase for it in the same kind of way around Ferguson, which is the most, I think, was the, the most recent large-scale movement. I mean, we had we did stories about, we talk, we didn't do them, we talked about stories about libraries and Ferguson being supported, and there was, mm-hmm. there was the kind of momentary, like, re- dealing with a hurricane kind of responses you generally see around those kinds of ideas, but then the hurricane's gone, so we're like, ah, there's no more hurricanes we have to think about anymore. This is, we're thinking about it, like, more like climate change, or we, we, like, the, the discourse is more like, this is an ongoing thing, we got to do something about it now, and we need systemic change, we need it rapidly, and it's broad-based. Um, does that feel right to you to think of it in those terms or what's your reaction to that kind of mental Yeah, I've been thinking about that as well. It does feel the, definitely the internet discourse around it feels a, very similar to the Me Too movement in that there are like famous people speaking out about things that happened to them in, mm. you know, very, you know, big and prestigious places. And then there are, you know, like just everyday civilian people also talking about their experiences and everyone in between, uh, like the light is being shined into just about everywhere um, by people who 
have historically been told that it was too dangerous to speak out. And I think that Me Too did demonstrate that you can speak out. And when enough Mm. people when enough Mm -hmm. people speak out and support each other, that becomes like you will be supported. It will be okay, Um, and, And you can take down these structures that have enabled this these awful things to happen for so long. I think we also can't ignore that like we were as a country in a pretty different place in 2014 when Ferguson happened than we are right now almost 4 years into yeah. a yeah, presidency yeah, yeah. and an administration that have been built on white supremacy um from you know day 1 of the a campaign even before a campaign. Um And me too similar, right? I mean maybe similar yeah. origin sort of bing bang of Yes. Like- inculcating a a different kind of urgency is the wrong word because a a different kind of combination of urgency and listening and receptiveness Mm to being a part of it. We're in the middle of a pandemic that affects black people disproportionately for a lot of systemic reasons, Mm -hmm. Um, reasons tied to systemic racism and to white supremacy and to lack of access to resources and care and to black people being in positions for work that require them to be essential workers and to put themselves at risk of the virus in order to continue earning a paycheck and continue having the jobs um, that they've had. And then you stack on top of it, the rest of the nation being in a stay home order where mm-hmm. we're, we can't go anywhere. We can't look away. And mm-hmm. I think that all those things added, like that's sort of my personal understanding of how we've ended up here right now is that all of those things added up to a moment where um, things that people could acknowledge, like that's awful, that shouldn't happen, but then they could distract themselves by going to work or by being busy or whatever it is that they needed to do. Like the moment of this pandemic forces us to like, we have to sit, we can't go do things. You're sitting and having to look at what's happening in this country. And it feels urgent because we are in this place with this administration um, in a way that we weren't six years ago. They just, yeah, I, I mean, think, I, I think, think it's so all too. in the pot. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to know for myself exactly. Cause I, everything you said about how black people, uh, are especially vulnerable always, but especially in the midst of COVID-19. But if if it does have some structural feelings that are similar to whatever engendered Me Too's potency, that didn't have COVID-19. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. A-B test the universe. Like, right. would it, would this, is this, would the protest be more or less vociferous without COVID-19? I don't think, it doesn't matter. It's more of a, it's more of a, you know, trying to understand what's happening, get a, get a picture of all the factors involved. The issues are still the issues, and maybe it, it changes some degree, but that we have a Me Too movement that feels structurally similar in terms of its impact. One of them was in COVID, one of them not, means maybe you don't need it. You could do it either way. Either way, it's you, you might, we, might be maybe, more, yeah, I, we might be more receptive to this. We, you know, that's a very general we, of course, but <laughs> um, it's fascinating to see yeah, um, I think I've by seen day the, how things are evolving. The analogy drawn that like COVID is very clearly a public health crisis for everyone and very specifically a public health crisis for communities of color and and within that specifically for black communities because of elevated risk that you take that and that we are, you know, folks are accepting those statistics and then you take the statistic that being killed by the police is the sixth highest cause of death for black men. And when you look at the raw numbers for that, it makes 
police brutality a public health crisis? And yeah, I think having yeah. the analogy right in front of us in this moment of what COVID is doing um, mm-hmm. and what police brutality, like the very real impact in life and death terms of police brutality is contributing to the conversation. Um, but it's impossible, right? It's impossible to take any of these variables out and know which one is impacting the conversation in which directions or by how much. Um, but I think these are all the things that are in the mix right now that make this moment different. Yeah. Um, I guess moving from a disaster, um, maybe maybe a good disaster in terms of it might be like the vomitous heave that gets rid of whatever's the problem mm-hmm. or NBCC uh, itself. Um, Amistad Books, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, um, started a campaign called Blackout the Bestseller List, hashtag Blackout Bestseller List, because we don't use uh, definitive articles and hashtags. Um, basically saying, buy, go buy two books. Buy, buy books. Don't just read them, buy them, right? That's, that's kind of the idea mm-hmm. here is like, you know, reading is, reading is great. I've seen some interesting discussions of late about reading not being enough, which of course, I think if you've listened to us, totally, totally support. Um, yeah. We happen to be a podcast about books, but uh, if you ever hear us say anything like, you know, reading a couple books about racism, you've done your, you've done your, uh, you've done your thing. <laughs> that is not true. That is not true. The thing, the thing persists to be done, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which I support. So they're trying to, they're trying to basically get enough books bought by black authors to affect how they appear on bestseller lists. So, you know, kind of a targeted window, June 13th to June 20th. By the time you hear this, it's going to be too late. I think it's interesting. You, I guess watch the bestseller list. Maybe we'll talk about it next week and see if it works. Just as anecdotal, well, it's not anecdotal, it's data, to look at Publishers Weekly's list of the five best-selling books right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Top 10 overall is The Songbirds and Snakes. Okay, we've got the big you know, cultural phenomena. But then, so you want to talk about race, white fragility, you have a countdown 1945, and then stamp from the beginning. So three of the five are you know, about this moment. Um, we, mm-hmm. I don't, they're not all, you know, I don't think they would uh, necessarily be the ones everyone would pick necessarily, but these are the top 10 overall. These aren't by genre. This isn't nonfiction. This is overall. And I think the sales have been striking all the way. Um, and I don't know, that's one of those situations where you and I talk a lot about something selling for a while doesn't mean anything. Does it, you know, how, how do you translate selling over a month, a year, mm-hmm. a week into quote unquote mattering? And it's not something that's easy to trace, but boy, this is, we're into multiple weeks now of seeing a lot of books by black authors and then about race. And this is centering books by black authors that don't even have to be about race. I guess that's right. an important thing to say. Um, in fact, I know it's an important thing to say, uh, but this seems to be you know, a, a representative of a recognition about structural change in multiple fields comes down to dollars, supporting black-owned business, supporting all kinds of things that are more about just talk, and that dollars is literally the coin of the realm. Mm-hmm. And spending those in a way that's intentional makes uh, a difference. Um, what yeah. else do you think? What else I do think, you say about I that? I think this is an interesting start of an action, um, mm-hmm. like buy two books by black authors over the course of a week and try to get one bestseller list that's blacked out. That's uh, That would be a really powerful statement, I think. And this is like a deeply skeptical thing that I'm about to say, and I want to okay. acknowledge yeah, it. I know where I'm, you're going. I want to hear you. I want to hear you. I think I'm deeply skeptical of publishing <laughs> for all the reasons mm-hmm. discussed on this podcast for the last like eight, six or eight years um, that 
sales for two weeks that black out one or two weeks worth of bestseller lists in which publishers are aware that those purchases were part of a targeted campaign. I think that, but I think that can also become easy to dismiss. Hopefully, publishers uh, are seeing. Hopefully, they will see readers' interest in and demand for and willingness and desire to support Black writers with their dollars. And I hope that this is the beginning of a movement and more intentionality about how people spend their money on books in general. And, you know, I'm seeing the conversation about supporting Black-owned businesses in all industries, and I, I think it's time for that as well. My skeptical concern is that a publisher trying to make decisions or processing through their unconscious bias about which books to publish in the future would discount these or would discount sales from a campaign like this, knowing that these are sales from a campaign and not like mm. some kind of like, I feel gross, some kind of like authentic expression of people's interests. Well, not like, something they can build into their P&L for the title, right? Like they won't right. account and for like, that this what, matters. I've seen some other suggestions that I think are maybe more useful in the long run. And that would be like, take your book buying dollars for the year or the rest mm. of your life and spend your book buying dollars on books by black authors and other writers of color, spend them at black owned businesses and get your other books from the library. Like that's one way to do it. It would another way to do it would be like every time you buy books, make sure that some of the books you're buying are by black writers. Um, mm. There are a ton of other ways to do this, right? And library checkouts do matter as they convey to publishers what people are interested in. So like wherever you're getting books and however you're consuming them, if you're reading books by black authors and you're spending money on books by black authors, that needs to be a long-term situation. Like mm -hmm. if you saw this blackout bestseller list thing and you were like, cool, I'm ordering my two books by black authors and you don't spend money on books by black authors for the rest of the year or the rest of the decade or whatever, like you have not actually contributed to anything <laughs> other right. than helping these people in this moment sell books, which is not nothing, but it's not a systemic solution. No. So if we're talking about voting with our dollars in a way that pushes publishers to have to publish more books by black writers because they can no longer hide behind the idea that those books don't sell, then we need books by black writers on the bestseller list every week. Well, you and I have talked about this before when we come back to talk about the writers. I think the last time we maybe talked about it was when we were talking about what writers would move the needle in your understanding about like self-publishing or moving to Amazon, right? Like what mm -hmm. author, like mm -hmm. uh, Stephen King, the... You know, the Robert Ludlums of the world, if they decide to start self-publishing, then we'll be like, that's the kind of name that would get you to sit up and take notice that self-publishing isn't just, well, self-publishing is important in a lot of different ways, but it hasn't penetrated those kinds of multi-million selling authors. They do some stuff with Amazon, but that's not self-publishing anymore. But in talking about that, we always mention, or at least I hope we always mention, we've mentioned it before that there's not a name on that that's a person of color. They just they just aren't. There's the, the the Robert Ludlums, the John Grishams, the Daniel Steeles. I'm not even sure where you go after you know after those the, the people whose names are embossed in gold and it doesn't even matter what the title are, th those aren't people of color. And that is still true. So what when I say what kind of sales matter, you're hitting on the same thing. What kind of sales are going to matter? How are they going to pay attention? What does it translate in terms into ongoing, real, and sort of crescendoing change in the world of publishing 
that's a lot less clear. We talk about it every year with the VEDA count, um, especially when they, when, when they include um, staff counts about uh, publishers. Call. We saw with the Lee and Lowe thing that like 1% of editorial people in publishing are black, and people have been talking about it for years. And yet, and we can, what, what's going to happen? What's going what's gonna to happen? What number would need to be sold of these titles for there to be meaningful seismic change? It's unclear. On the other hand, if you don't do this, then, you know, is this, is this a through point on the way to something else that you have to go through? It's no guarantee you're going to get there, but do you need to go through something like this to get to the promised land of where you want to be? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe some other option, but you're right. It's the intentional dollar spending over time. I don't know there's another way to do it. If, if publishing itself isn't going to be the dog that wags its own tail, then the tail of the book buying public is going to have to wag the dog? That seems hard to ask the book public buying to do as much as I would like to see. I don't know. I, now I'm getting more skeptical than I was to start with. Thank you very much, <laughs> Rebecca Shins. I know. I mean, it's interesting. There's a, um, a publishing house staffer who um, is a black person who asked to remain anonymous in yep. this piece for The Guardian who says that it took a social uprising for publishers to finally focus on titles by black authors. And that's unfortunate. And that's absolutely true. And they also they also quote an author here named uh, Kosako Jackson, who says publishing is always five to 10 years behind the curve. I don't think we'll see change instantly. But I think we need each conversation. Mm. We're getting closer and closer to shifting the needle. We need more black decision makers at the table in positions of power. And that's, yeah, that's yes, like, I don't want to poop all over this campaign. I think this is a great, it's a low barrier to entry. And sometimes a low barrier to entry is what people who don't know how to get started need. Like there are folks who are, who it took a social uprising for them to start paying attention to racism. And if you have people in your bookish circle who were like, what? Oh, now I get it. This is a thing. Like, Mm. hello and welcome. One of the very first easy things they can do is go buy two black, two books by black authors. Like, that's a great first step. Um, Make it a practice. I think that's what I want is like analysis in our lives of what are the things that we can practice that make ongoing meaningful Mm -hmm. difference. And it shouldn't be the consumer's job to change publishing. Like, that's on publishing and publishing could do it right now. They could decide today that they're going to make, you know, 50% of the books they publish for the next 10 years by black people because they are working to right some wrongs and those books would sell because they would put marketing budgets behind them because they would have spent money to acquire them. Publishing could make this change on its own, but if you're thinking about your own actions as an individual person and how they contribute to the system, this is something that you can do. Yeah, I, I think it's my sense. Of it's more. Of a, it's a three sixty. Like publishing can do things, but if consumers do different things, then it's it, it's also a virtuous circle, right? Like things right, will like, go faster if everyone paddles a little bit. Yeah, um, I absolutely want to give publishing positive reinforcement for putting out books by black authors and give publishing the idea that this is a good thing and you should do more of it. And so, if you have book dollars to spend, that's one way you can do it. Uh, let's do a sponsor, and we'll come back um, and talk about a book I think you should buy. We talked about before. It's, I, it was one of my dad's Father's Day's gifts. I, it's not in the show notes. I, I don't know. If, I was uh, like, "What I, is this going to be?" <laughs> but Oprah picked her next book. Did you see? <laughs> no. Oprah's book club picked her next book. It was just yesterday. Deacon King Kong by ah, James McBride, mm-hmm. uh, which is set in Brooklyn in the '60s. It's sort of a comedic, dark mystery noir. I thought it was really great. Um, 
and I thought my dad would really like it too. I know you're going to listen to this after Father's Day. I've got two <laughs> Father's Day picks late for, for people. Um, this is good for anyone, but uh, if you have a, a, a parental unit that is a Father's Day eligible, however you define that recipient, um, Deacon King Kong is really great. Also, the news came out today in Publishers Weekly, or Publishers Lunch, rather, that it's been optioned for TV. Um, so it's probably going to be a series. I think it's going to be a really interesting kind of a series. Um, like, kind of, you know, it, it's, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like if you took The Wire and it's more, it's more explicitly centered on black people of a whole bunch of different kinds, but with a rire comedic sensibility. Um, anyway, I just really, th- Jane McBride has, even though he won a Pulitzer Prize for The Good Lord Bird, Still isn't the name as well known yeah. as it should be, and I hope that changes because it's it's well deserved and it's a little unusual for Oprah to pick this. It's it's like a noir crime. It's it's interesting that you it is. Pick it's it. kind of surprised. an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really glad to see this. My other pick. Uh, this is a for dad adjacent people. I know we got so many recommendations for dads grads uh, show, and I'll probably recommend this for this fall one or whatever. And it it it. it affected me so much I was texting Rebecca about this so I think you know what you're going to talk about it's this book called The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton that just came out mm-hmm. on June whatever Tuesday was no last Tuesday the 9th uh, is that right did I do the math right on hey how do you know um, uh, minus 2 <laughs> minus 7 that's 9 uh, anyway so we got a lot of recommendations especially for dads who like to read nonfiction about politics and you want to move their needle towards maybe where you are on the spectrum without knowing their needles being moved for them <laughs> Right? Stealthy needle moving. Stealth, yeah, stealthy needle. Yeah, show title. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not an economist, so I'm going to butcher this. But the basic idea is, what if everything you understood about the federal budget is wrong? That we don't need to offset spending with equivalent tax um, uh, collection. That your tax dollars do not actually go to fund the things that the federal government spends its money on. That there is virtually no problem with in it in itself of the government racking up trillion dollar, multiple trillion dollars over many years, federal quote unquote deficits, basically, and it lends itself to a certain progressive kinds of politics. Stephanie Kelton herself is an economist. She was the chief economist for the Democrats while Obama um, was president. But she also describes how even Democrats had a hard time understanding the argument she was making, which is essentially this. In 1971, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, right, where U.S. dollars didn't need to be pegged to basically be, you could basically turn in your dollars for gold anymore, that that changed the nature of currency, that basically the U.S. is an autonomous issuer of fiat currency. That we can, The U.S. government can issue as many dollars at once. It just all it needs to do is go into a spreadsheet and, and do it. But since it is the sole controller of that, it can then issue new. If, it, if we have a $3 trillion deficit that we decide we want to pay off, go into Excel at the Fed and uh, pay it off. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't constraints, but it's more about containing inflation. But it blew my mind, Rebecca Shinsky. And <laughs> you I, are all fired up. There are, there are, there's, there's, there's dads who are ready to hear this. I'm going to buy it for my dad, for your dad, who people who are dads at heart, who are interested in in (laughs) politics and finance. For those of you who aren't dads that are interested in thinking differently, and I think correctly, about how we could use our national resources to make things like full employment and affordable housing all possible under 
really the right way to think about money. I, I haven't read a nonfiction book that blew my mind like this in a long, long time. And again, I'm not an economist, so I'm sure there's a counter argument, like what, what Stephanie Kelton gets wrong about this. I'm seeking those out to see because I really don't want to, um, uh, I don't like to take anything uncritical. But it's, it's a long answer to question I had in my mind as a neophyte interest in finances. Like, so if the government can just print money, I don't understand why I have deficit. Yeah, you know, I've always wondered, like, it never made any sense to me that that was a thing. And it turns out there's a reason for that. Not that I'm smart, I'm just dumb in the right way about how these <laughs> things work. Deficit submitted by Stephanie Kelton. Um, 262 pages. It's not super dense. Like it's it's clearly meant for a popular audience insofar as it, books about a federal fiscal policy can be written for general audiences. But I thought it was great. So if uh, if you're looking for something for again, I'm going to keep. I, too bad I didn't have it for last week um, because I think it would be a really good dad kind of book. Because that's a, not not because it's only for dads. I said because we get these kind of recommendations re- requests for dads. That's, that's yeah. why I'm putting it here. Um, so anyway, really, 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 really really unbelievably blown away by that, that book. five reallys is like the equivalent of you using more than one exclamation point in an entire year's worth of communication and uh, that's a big deal again if it's if it's anywhere close to right the, the ramifications for how money gets spent by the government are wild they're just they're mind-blowingly wild i texted clint our, our friend and co-worker and he finished it over the weekend and we were having text exchanges about fiscal policy we're both sort of interested in this sort of thing <laughs> that so like, is the daddest dad text exchange of look, ever <laughs> you don't have to be a dad i'm just saying just a dad at heart i'm just saying there is this is the book you've been looking for for your center right dad that's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. This is the book you've been looking for. This is the book you've been looking for. I don't have dad books to recommend, but if you are looking for recommendations of two books by black authors that you could buy mm. towards your blackout the bestseller lists effort, because I have a spoiler for you that all the big titles about anti-racism are hard to find right <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> you get them on Kindle. That, good luck. Otherwise, And black yeah. people do write books about things other than racism. Yes, 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 yes. Um, one is called I'm in the middle of it right now it's called The Home Place Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature it's by J. Drew Lanham he is an ornithologist and a nature writer among many other things his family is from Edgefield County South Carolina and has lived there for generations dating back to the point where some of his ancestors were enslaved and he writes about the experience of coming to like fall in love with nature, but also what it is to be a black person um, Mm. in relation to the natural world, a black person occupying spaces of like bird watching and being part of outdoors culture, which has a very big race problem as well. Mm. Um, Like I've been thinking about this book as a really interesting and important intersection of like environmentalism's problems with race and publishing's problems with race and that those things add up to there are very few books about nature and outdoor Mm -hmm. outdoors culture and environmentalism and conservation in general written by people of color um, or published by people of color and this is a really wonderful one and i would love to see it continue to sell so that publishers have some motivation to do is that some new more. when did that come out no it came out in 2017 yeah, I, I was gonna never, say i think i've yeah. heard about it before but i I'd lost track of it i, I hadn't heard of it and then mm. a friend a bookseller friend texted me recently when they were processing an order like someone from their store had a customer had ordered it and they were like hey i think you would like this mm. um turns out they were right it's from milkweed publishing which mm. also publishes um braiding sweetgrass by robin wall kimmerer another wonderful book about the natural world written by a person of color um if you're looking for 
another one there. And then my other recommendation comes out in July. So if you pre-order it, you could contribute to its success on opening day. Um, It comes out July 7th. It's called The Beauty and Breaking. It's a memoir by Michelle Harper. It is phenomenal. Mm. Um, She's a black woman who grew up in an affluent suburb in DC. She went to Harvard, then she went to medical school and became an, she's an ER doctor. And she wrestles in this with, um, what, with what it's like to be a black woman working in medicine, um, in terms of very personal ways and also the big systemic ways. She looks at the healthcare system and a, a whole bunch of interesting things and a whole bunch of interesting problems about it. It's really beautiful. Uh, and as you know, as a memoir does also reflects on just like her life as a person in general in ways that are really beautiful. Um, I was really struck by it. Um, She also writes about the yoga and meditation practices that help her be able to be a black woman who goes into these spaces and does the kind of work that she does um, with challenging populations and um, connects those practices. Also interesting to like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and the Mm. work of other writers of color. Um, So it's coming out July 7th. It's phenomenal. Um, The Beauty and Breaking by Michelle Harper. So those are mine. Let's do a last sponsor break and wrap up with a, a couple quick things. Uh, one quick thing, I just saw this. Um, for those of you who haven't yet seen the documentary about Toni Morrison called The Pieces I Am, I'm doing this from mm. memory, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be on PBS on Tuesday. Um, I think the first time you can see it for free since it's been in theaters. I think you could then rent it digitally, but it's going to be on PBS on Tuesday as part of the, is it masterpieces? I can my I get my yeah, cultural shows with masterwork, masterpiece, <laughs> masterpiece theater from PBS all confused. Um, but go check your local listings. Like it's uh, 1986 and you're checking Reader's Digest, I guess. But it's on PBS. I don't know if I don't, PBS is streaming app. Can you get on? I don't know how many listings. I have no idea. Anymore. No idea. But anyway, that that's coming out too. Uh, it's not our horn. We get to toot, but it's a it's a horn in the band for which we play. Um, <laughs> That uh, Isabel Pop, a writer for Book Riot, published a piece today that talks about the Jefferson Davis home losing literary landmark status. So Isabel wanted to know, as as you know, I, I guess the the most visible representation is these Confederate statues. Uh, Rebecca's seen this up close mm-hmm. in, in, in her in her lovely domicile of Richmond, getting toppled. Uh, Isabel was curious um, about the American Library Association's task, which is Basically, preserving, protecting these literary landmarks. Um, and this is, there was the Jefferson Davis's House of Beauvoir, I believe. I don't know if it's Beauvoir. I don't know if the, the, the American way of saying it, I'm not sure. I've never heard it said out loud, so I'm not sure which one of those it is. Basically, after she, now we, they didn't say to her that because you asked, we decided to look at this, but she said she asked. <laughs> no, nothing had been said. And then they responded to her saying they had voted unanimously to immediately establish a joint working group to look with the Associates Office for Diversity, Literacy, and Outreach Services. This news then followed that they were going to rescind the status of the literary landmark. Just a great job by Isabel. The kinds of thing, I guess the the way these this moment has infused so many things that are just sort of like openly racist taken for granted that we preserve this and it's, you know, fun. Money from the ALA presumably has been going to preserve Jefferson Davis's house. And when you say it out loud, you can't believe it took this long. But good job, Isabel. The kind of simple 
thoughtful question that can lead to change with people who are like willing to hear at this particular moment. So I wanted to shout that uh, out as well. There'll be a link in the show notes, as there always is, to all the show, uh, all the episodes. Gosh darn it, stories we talk about <laughs> in the episodes. Bookwrite.com. <laughs> Slash listen. Do you want to get us out on Marley again? We haven't talked about Marley in a while, and it seems like you know if we've gone three months without talking about Marley, we should check on her to make sure that we, we haven't missed anything awesome that she's done. We like should. So years ago, when she was even younger than she is now, yeah. um, I guess it was in 2015. Marley Diaz was a seventh grader. She couldn't find enough books um, by um, books for kids with uh, with black kids in them. She was 12 at the time. She created a campaign called 1,000 Black Girls Book Drive. Um, that was a movement to collect and donate kids books that featured black girls as the lead character. Now Marley is 15. Um, She has published her own book. She was named by Time as one of the 25 most influential teens in 2018. And she has a list published this week at parade.com. And we will have this link in the show notes to you as well, where she is recommending her picks um, for diverse books for kids and teens. So, you know, curating and continuing to draw attention to um, books for younger people to see themselves and their lives um, represented back to them. Uh, Buy some of these if you're looking for Blackout, the bestseller list. Also, um, this is a great resource for the younger people in your life or for you if you like to read books, um, middle grade or YA. There's some comics, so check that Mm. out. Uh, Marley, call us when you're 18. (laughs) And you can what? take over book. No, call, so you can give us a job because you'll right. be the CEO of Random House in three years. <laughs> right. Do, do you think she has to even like submit an application to like Harvard or whatever? Like, oh. do you just like, it's just like they, she just should tweet at Harvard with like, like hey, I'm coming. You up? Harvard, <laughs> you up? Oh man, what a just awesome young lady. And it's cool to see that. So great. It's just cool to see this campaign continue. You know, we feature heroes of the week as often as we can find a hero. Um, And she was the hero of the week when um, 1000 Black Girls Books was created. It's just really awesome to see. Um, I feel like this is one of those the kids are going to be all right Mm. moments because they've got Marley on their side and other kids like her. You know how like SNL keeps track of like how many times someone has hosted like Eddie Murphy's right. hosted like nine times or right. Alec Baldwin I yeah. think has a record for like 5,000 times or whatever. Marley, I think maybe our only repeat here of the week to my mm-hmm. knowledge. I think you're right. And we're probably, it's probably like how Jordan should have won eight MVPs instead of five. We probably <laughs> missed her a couple weeks just because we uh, stupidly we should, taking her for granted. So We should uh, rename it the Marley Diaz. Yeah, right. The, the Marley Diaz. No, the Marley Diaz of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've read um, my I've read some of these books and my kids. Grace for President is on this list, which is really great. Uh, the Hey You Give we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. The Poet X is really great. Another book uh, on. I wish I had taste this good um, uh, now, let alone when I was fifteen. Good lord, that makes mm-hmm. me. Uh, I need to th- I need to go sit with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we we should not put fifteen year old Jeff's book picks up against Marley. <laughs> no, 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 we shouldn't. <laughs> Really nothing of Jeff's up against of anything of Marley's. That's a very, very tough look for, for me. Uh, anyway, well done, Marley. Um, I hope all of you out there are, are hanging tough um, as summer comes along. Um, each day with its new challenges, I know. Um, we'll be back to talk to you next week. Fill out the survey. Reader survey. As part of the, the deal, you'll be entered for a chance to win you a brand new Kobo. Uh, reader, which would be fun to have in these times. Um, could use it to maybe buy or read book by black authors. All the links are at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, was there anything else you're going to ask for? We're back on our weekly news schedule for the summer. 
Um, we might do a special episode or so as part of this. Is if the news usually the news would slow down as we get into July and August, but I have no expectation Who that's going knows? to be the case. So yeah, um, we were BR's best books of the year will come out sometime this summer. We might devote half an episode to look at some of those titles to be where we've been um, at that point. Yeah, and next week we will release a bonus episode with me, Sharifa, and oh, right. Vanessa yes, talking about The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Since I'm not on that, it doesn't really matter. No, I'm kidding. I just <laughs> forgot that that was coming out. Um, so yeah, that'll be out next week. Looking forward to that. I have that on my shelf. Um, that I'm gonna I, I'm gonna read that before I listen to you guys. So I'm gonna make that happen this weekend. Uh, Rebecca, as always, a pleasure. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one.